Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 880. And as you're finding your place, it is widely recognized that looks can be deceiving. Right? Things are not always as they appear to be. And so we are wise not to evaluate things simply on how they present themselves at first glance. And that is certainly true when it comes to spiritual matters. And this morning, as Jesus continues to deal with the religious leadership in the temple, he's going to emphasize that. He's going to remind us of this reality as he warns us against hypocrisy and, and encourages us, commends faithfulness in the way that we live our lives and in how we give and work for the sake of the kingdom. And so we're in Luke chapter 20, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 45. It says, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so ever since Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, the religious leaders have been opposing him. Uh, they've been trying to find a reason to hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities and have him killed. But so far, everything they have tried has backfired. And so last week, Jesus demonstrated his divine wisdom in answering their trick questions and then stumping them with a question of his own. And now they're no longer willing to challenge him openly. And so now as we pick up here again in verse 45, Jesus calls them out in the hearing of all the people. Now notice that he's talking to his disciples, but he's doing it in a way that so everyone around can hear what he's saying. And as he does, he tells them, beware of the scribes. Now remember that the scribes were the people who were in charge of preserving the scriptures by, by copying them down and being able to pass them on. And as they did that, day after day after day, they became the experts on what the Bible said. They became experts in the Old Testament law. And so naturally, they eventually served as teachers in the temple, and they also uh, provided counsel in legal cases as to how the law applied to various situations. And so the scribes were some of the most revered people in the Jewish nation. But despite their status, Jesus tells his disciples to beware of them, to watch out for them, which implies that they are, in fact, dangerous. Now, specifically, Jesus explains that the scribes are insincere and hypocritical. Their, their motivations are not pure. And so, first of all, he criticizes them because they like to walk around in long robes. 
Right? So scribes had long white robes that they would wear that distinguished them from everyone else. Right? So you never had to ask yourself, hmm, I wonder if that guy is a scribe, because it was obvious. Right? They have this long white robe which causes them to stand out from everybody else. Now, of course, there, there's nothing wrong with wearing a long white robe. The problem that Jesus reveals here is that they like walking around like that, which implies that, that the scribes like being scribes because it makes them important. It's, a, it's an issue of status for them. And so I, I remember when I was a kid, when all-star season came around for baseball, uh, I was so excited to be an all-star, and I wanted everyone else to know that I was an all-star. And so when I finally got my navy blue hat with, with the gold BC letters on the front of it, I wore it everywhere. I wore it everywhere that I went. All right? I wanted people to see me, and I wanted them to know that I was a good baseball player. Now, of course, you can understand a kid having a certain desire to be seen and to be affirmed, but it's another thing for adults, and particularly those who are supposed to be spiritual leaders, to have a childish desire for attention. And Jesus calls out the scribes here for wearing their uniforms so as to be seen by everyone. Next, Jesus says that the scribes also love greetings in the marketplaces. And so in the first century, if a scribe was walking by, it was customary to stand up as, as they passed as a sign of respect. And so you can imagine in a, in a public setting, particularly like a, a crowded marketplace, you can just envision this wave of motion that happens as everyone stands and clears a path for a scribe to come through. It's pretty cool, right? You could get used to that kind of a thing. And apparently the scribes did get used to it. They loved seeing people move around because of them. Then related to this, Jesus also reveals that the scribes enjoy sitting in the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor at feasts. As we've discussed before, that in an honor-based culture, uh, seating in any type of, of public or social uh, gathering was always done according to rank and in status, it communicated who you were. And so the very least important would be all the way at the back or at the end of the line, and then it would work its way all the way up to the front where, where the most important person or, or the guest of honor would be. And so pretty much wherever they went, scribes would get the best seats. They were the original VIPs. And this was another perk that they thoroughly enjoy. So clearly, it's good to be a scribe. And honestly, again, we could understand people getting caught up in all of the attention that they receive, maybe even starting to believe their own press a little bit. But then in verse 47, Jesus reveals a more sinister side to their arrogance. First, he says that the scribes devour widows' houses. Now, a house here doesn't refer specifically to a dwelling place, although that would be included. It would include everything that a person owned, their, their household, everything in their livelihood. And so Jesus reveals that the scribes go after the, position, the possessions of widows. And it's not entirely clear what this means in terms of the specifics. It, it could be that the scribes charged widows exorbitant fees for their legal services, or perhaps uh, they took advantage of their hospitality 
in some way. Uh, I remember in my church growing up, we, we had a dear uh, elderly member who from time to time would forget that she had already given her offering for the month. And so she would sometimes write a second check or even a third, and our, our church secretary would have to track her down and, and remind her that she'd already given, uh, and so we weren't going to deposit those extra checks. And, and perhaps something like that is, is similar, similarly at play here. But whatever it is, what is clear is that the scribes are using their position and their authority to take advantage of vulnerable people for their own benefit. And Jesus is not happy about that. This isn't simply a matter of of pride. This is is wicked. This is taking advantage of people. And finally, Jesus says that the scribes make long prayers for a pretense. And now, a pretense is something that is said or done to make something appear a certain way, when in reality, it is not that way. And in the ancient world, prayer was usually spoken out loud, right? So if you're in the temple walking around, you would be able to hear other people praying. And the scribes pray. Boy, do they pray. They pray about everyone and everything. They use big theological words that nobody knows what that means, and they pray for a long, long time. And so if you happen to be walking by, you would think to yourself, man, that scribe is so spiritual, I wish I could be as holy as he is. And Jesus reveals here that that's exactly what they want you to think. That's precisely the point. When they pray, they're not communing with God. They're putting on a show. They are performing to be seen and heard by others to enhance their reputation. So the bottom line here is that looks can be deceiving. Right? On the outside, the scribes look like the ideal leaders for God's people. But in reality, they use religion in order to gain popularity for their own benefit. Right? What they do is not an expression of genuine love for God and for other people. It's, it's a show carefully designed to, for their own gain. And we also see that this is not going to end well for them. Right? At the very end of the paragraph, Jesus declares that they will receive the greater condemnation. And so just as we've seen before that there will be varying degrees of reward for faithfulness in heaven, so there will also be different degrees of punishment for sin in hell. And these scribes who have abused their authority, who have spent their lives immersed in the scriptures and know that what they're doing is wrong, they are going to receive the worst judgment of all. And so Jesus warns his disciples and anyone in the area who's willing to listen to watch out for the scribes. Don't don't aspire to be like them. Don't allow them to influence you. And now before we move on, if we recognize that looks can be deceiving, then we should take a moment to ask ourselves, in my own life, do my outward actions and activities match the reality of my heart? Do I really want to be godly and pursue Jesus with my life? Or do I just want other people to think that I am? You see, there there is an eternal danger in hypocrisy. And so we should do everything that we can to fight against it in our lives. And, you know, theology aside, this made me think this week, that one of the most practical benefits, one of the most practical reasons why active church membership is so important is because we need to be known by other people. 
Right? It's, it's easy to show up here once a week for an hour or two, feel good about ourselves, and move on with life. Right? But the call of discipleship requires us to invest in each other's lives. And when we do that, that takes time. And when we spend time with one another, the surface-level imagery fades pretty quickly. Right? First impressions give way to the more complicated realities of life. When we spend time with people, we're able to see each other's quirks. Uh, we come to understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. And then we're able to help each other follow Jesus more faithfully. Right? We come into a position to be able to encourage each other or, or to admonish each other when necessary. Right? There are opportunities for confession, forgiveness, prayer, support, love, repentance, and ultimately, growth. If you want to get a picture of what this can look like, then I would invite you to join in on our next discipleship class on how people change. Starting in a couple of weeks, it could change your life. Now, of course, this is not to say that we can't still be hypocritical, even in the context of close community with our brothers and sisters, but it's a lot harder that way. It's a lot harder to be hypocritical when we are actively engaged in each other's lives. The hypocrisy thrives in isolation. And so one take-home thing for you today is to consider that one of the best things you could do for your own spiritual health is to give yourself actively into the membership of the church. Invest yourself in the life of the church through membership. Looks can be deceiving. Jesus is going to continue emphasizing that as we move on into chapter 21. And so we'll pick up again in chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so Jesus has made it clear that he is not impressed by the scribes. But now as we move into chapter 21, he sees an example of someone he is impressed by. Luke writes that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And so in the, the outer court of the temple, there was a, a designated area with 13 boxes for people to, to put in their offerings and their, their tithes. And so Jesus is observing as people do this. And he sees a bunch of rich people putting their gifts into the offering box. And presumably it, it takes them a little while to put all of their money into the box. And perhaps this large amount of money makes a, a big noise as it finally hits the bottom. But then he sees a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. Now there's two things for us to notice here. Uh, the first is that the word that Luke use, uses to describe the widow. When he says what we translate as poor here, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used, and it really points to a sense of destitution, okay? not having enough to, to meet your needs in life. And it, would be, it would be unusual for a widow to be financially stable in the ancient world, but this woman in particular is broke even by ancient standards. And then secondly, uh, these copper coins that she gives are called lepta. 
They were the, the smallest and least valuable coins in use in the first century. And together, they were worth about 1 64th of a denarius, which we've seen is, is the daily wage for a common laborer. And so just for reference, if we wanted to call a denarius equal to $100, then these two lepta would be the equivalent of about $1.60. So it's literally almost nothing at all. But as Jesus sees this woman put her, her gift in the offering box, he points her out and he says to the disciples, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, Everybody listening to Jesus knows good and well that that is not true, right? Literally, nobody has given any less than this woman. But then Jesus goes on to explain in verse 4, For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And now we see that Jesus measures value on a different scale. He determines worth not based on the face value, of a gift, but based on the heart attitude behind the gift. It's true that some of these other people put in a whole lot of money, but they had a lot of money, and so it really didn't cost them all that much. On the other hand, this woman has put in almost nothing in terms of actual value, but as a poor widow, every cent counts. She needs everything she can get in order to survive. And in that sense, what this woman has given far outweighs what everyone else has given because it means more for her to give it. We're reminded, again, that looks can be deceiving as even the, the smallest gift possible receives the greatest commendation from Jesus. When I graduated from college and was about to go to seminary, one of the most meaningful gifts that I received was $50 from my pastor at the time. Now, in, in the big picture, it, it was not a lot of money. I had other friends and family who, who gave me more than that. But you have to understand that Tom had been a career missionary in the Dominican Republic. And, and in retirement, he had pastored a couple of small country churches. He was not banking. Right? He was not banking. And, and I, I had been told him, I said, Brother Tom, you really don't need to give me anything. I, I appreciate the way that you've invested in me over the last couple of years. And he stopped me and he said, no, I believe in you. And I want this to be an investment in your future ministry. And I was like, whoa. You know, that made it mean so much more to me in that moment for him to to put it in that way, right? I mean, I I appreciated what, what aunts and uncles and grandparents gave, but they really just cut a check real quick and put it in the mail. right? But it meant something for Tom to give me that present for graduation. And that made it so much more meaningful. It didn't go any further at Walmart, but it meant more to me. And the same principle is at work here. This widow's gift is hardly worth the effort that she's gone to bring it to the temple. But in Jesus' eyes, this is more valuable than what everyone else has given because of what it meant for her to give it. So as we think about this, it's always good for us to remember that, that we are never meeting God's needs. Right? As we give and as we serve and all these other things, there is never a circumstance in which we are helping God or that we are meeting a need that he has in any way that, that he would be dependent on us. And when we keep that in mind as, as we utilize our resources to support kingdom work, 
then we remember that, that God is not necessarily impressed by what we might consider to be large gifts. He's not necessarily disappointed by what we might consider to be small gifts. God is not interested in the amount of zeros as much as he is interested in the heart of the one who gives. And so if you want to think about this, if we wanted to have a chart with four quadrants, then we could have a slot for giving a lot that doesn't really mean that much, giving a lot that does mean a lot, giving a little that really doesn't mean much, and giving a little that, that does mean a lot. Right? And which quadrant we fall into is going to be determined by the particulars of, of our circumstances. Right? So there may be somebody who gives $100,000, and all of us in this room would think, wow, that's pretty amazing. Right? But if the person is a multimillionaire, then it becomes less valuable in God's eyes. Right? On, on the other hand, perhaps someone doesn't have as much, and, and they choose to use that as an excuse not to give anything at all. Well, we might feel like that's justified in a certain sense, and yet God is still not pleased because they're using that as an excuse to do nothing at all, right? Uh, Or perhaps you have a lot, and you also give sacrificially in ways that clearly show that supporting kingdom work is important to you, and in that case, the Lord is pleased. And while this this story focuses on money, our application of it does not need to be restricted uh, to the way that we use our finances, all right, stewardship incorporates everything about our lives. And so the same principle is at work in the way that we spend our time and the way that we utilize our gifts and serve and work in, in, in kingdom uh, ministry. And so perhaps someone else has a bunch of free time to be able to volunteer in various ministries and serve in different ways. But for you, it's challenging just to get to church. And in that situation, it might be pleasing to the Lord just that you are consistently getting here. Or perhaps someone doesn't have a bunch of free time and they use that as an excuse to do nothing at all. And the Lord may not be pleased by that because he makes claims on the way that we use our resources. Now, I know that anytime we talk about this, it's frustrating. I see it on your faces because pretty much all of us just want to know how much do I need to give? How much do I need to do? Make it simple and clear-cut so that I know what's expected of me. And the problem is that there's simply not one size-fits-all answer to that, right? We can't compare ourselves to other people because nobody else is in our particular set of circumstances with the particular set of resources and abilities that the Lord has given to us. And so each one of us has to do the hard work, the heart work, to, to evaluate how the Lord has positioned us in life and what it looks like for us to prioritize the kingdom with what we have and where we are. Right? Looks can be deceiving, but the Lord sees our hearts, and that is what he is ultimately interested in. And so in our, our passage this morning, we're reminded that things are not always what they appear to be. What may look great on the outside may be rotten on the inside. And, and what seems to be uh, like nothing at first glance may actually be incredibly valuable. And so as we take some time to reflect on this text for our own lives, I would encourage us not to be presumptuous, not to answer the question too quickly and try to just move on. It takes time for us to trace out the implications of what this means for each one of us individually. But the principle ultimately comes down to is the way that I live my life what I'm giving, what I'm doing, reflective of a genuine love for God and for other people, 
that prioritizes the kingdom and the Great Commission? Or am I living primarily for my own benefit? Of course, we have to keep in mind that our living must always be in light of the gospel. right? The truth that, that for our sake, Jesus himself held nothing back and gave up everything to come and live and die and rise again as a sacrifice for our sins so that we can be saved, forgiven, and reconciled to God through trusting in what Jesus has done to save us. And we have to understand that that apart from being transformed by the gospel, all of our lives are unacceptable to God. Our very best deeds are are stained with with self-righteousness and selfish motives. And so whether for the first time or the 10,000th, we need to press into the gospel and allow it to transform us from the inside out. This morning, in light of God's word, I pray that we'll make every effort to live authentic lives of discipleship as we fight against hypocrisy and pursue faithfulness. Let's pray together.